Get your Bibles. There we go. Get your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start reading today in verse 1. Uh, we're going to specifically be looking today at verses 9 through 13, but we'll take a running start with Genesis 3, starting with verse 1. You probably don't need reminding, but I do. This is the Word of God. Holy, infallible, inerrant. We pray that Lord would press these truths down deep into our hearts this morning as we read the Word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this book of beginnings that we've been spending time in now again. We thank you for the reality that you portray here, true history, true meaning, true understanding of the world, the problems in the world, the answer to those problems. It's all found here in this book, in your word. Lord, help us this morning to understand it. Help us to believe it and to obey it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Sin. Sin. It's a short little word. One vowel, two consonants, three phonemes. If I was teaching this word, which actually I do sometimes teach at my school when I'm teaching reading, we sound it out, say it fast, sin. It's a little word, a three-letter word, but it carries with it so much weight and consequence. When we think of sin, our minds go to the individual acts of wrongdoing that, that we have committed, the lies we have told, the unkind words we've spoken the hurt that we've caused others, and the list could go on and on and on, couldn't it? But sin is more than just these individual acts, which, yes, clearly these are sin. But sin is a, it's a power. It's a force of rebellion that infects humanity's very being. And it all began not in our lifetime, but at the very origins of human, humankind, in the Garden of Eden. So today we're going to be looking at this pivotal passage as we continue in our study. 
And I've organized my thoughts into three points, which you have in your notes there. The reality of sin, the character of sin, and the consequences of sin. So let's begin. Number one, the reality of sin. In Genesis 3, we find Adam and Eve, after they've eaten the forbidden fruit, in direct defiance of God's command. With their rebellious act of disobedience, sin has tragically entered into the human experience. And this passage gives us a a sobering, a a somber picture of the sad reality that they now, now face and that we face today because of their choice to sin. First, we see the reality of sin. We see it in the hiding of Adam and Eve. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For the first time ever, Adam and Eve are hiding from God. Think of it. The first time that they're hiding for God. And they're not playing a game of hide and seek. (laughs) They're not doing this for fun. They're hiding from God. Before their sin, they enjoyed regular, intimate fellowship with their creator. There was no reason to hide, no reason to be ashamed in God's presence. But now, overwhelmed by their guilt, they foolishly attempt to hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing, omnipotent God. It's a tragic picture. One moment, freely walking with God, spending time with God, meeting with Him, conversing with Him, fellowshipping with Him, and now cowering instead in fear. This illustrates the the instant separation that their sin has created between them and their Creator. Where there once was, was warm relationship, now there's distance and estrangement. Heartbreaking distance and estrangement remain the devastating effects of our sin as well. You know the feeling, don't you? When there's been sin in your own household, when there's been sin in your life, it creates a a distance. It creates a separation. I find myself looking everywhere but into the eyes of the one that I've sinned against. If it's against my God, I find it difficult to open his book and to read his word. I find it hard to bow my knees or my head and to to pray because sin always causes separation. It's real. It's the reality of sin. In addition to hiding, we also see the reality of sin in the fear of Adam and Eve. In verses 9 and 10, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God, of course, knows exactly where Adam is and what he has done. But he mercifully calls out to Adam, giving him a a chance to repent. But how does Adam respond? With fear. The word for afraid means terror or dread. Adam's choice to disobey has turned the God he once uh, warmly walked with into a God that he now dreads. There is a fear of God that is a right fear of God, isn't there? A fear of God that is respect, honor, giving honor to him, to having respect in that way, a fear that we fear God, we do. But this fear is a different fear that doesn't cause respect and and a coming to God in respect, but instead a running away in dread. As Jeff talked about last week, which way do we run when we sin? Do we run to God or away from him? Disobedience puts us at odds with our creator, meaning his holiness that once seemed beautiful now strikes terror in our hearts. Our sin makes us afraid of the God who wants nothing more than a restored relationship with us. Through Adam and Eve's hiding and fear, Genesis 3 presents this harsh reality that sin creates separation and distance between God and mankind. 
Sin is real. Sin is real. And I think it's C.S. Lewis that talked about one of the greatest things that Satan tries to do is to convince people that he's not actually real. There's no such thing as a devil. Oh, you people, you Christians, you're so cute. Pat us on the head. You actually believe in, in, in Satan. You know, <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah, Satan is real. And so is sin. It's not just sin if you believe it's sin. If it's consenting adults, of course it's not sin. If I've chosen to cheat this way or lie this way, it's just a white. It's just that. No. Sin is sin. Satan is Satan. And sin is real. But, but what is sin? What is it? Grudem in his systematic theology defines sin this way. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. We could say it this way. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in thoughts, words, or deeds. How I think, how I speak, how I act. Sin is lawlessness against God. Everyone who practices who makes a practice of sinning, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4 says. It is a transgression of God's law and commandments. Psalm 51, 4 says, Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is a trespass or wrongdoing that occurs guilt before God. Romans 5, 15 says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died... Through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift uh, uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. We see that sin here is described as a trespass. You think about what is trespassing? It's coming onto, onto my property illicitly, right? This is, this is my boundary. And, and, and if you're trespassing, you're going where you ought not to go. That's what sin is. Sin is a trespass. You're going where you ought not to go. And that's why you look both ways before you step across the line. Is anyone seeing me? We live across the street from an elementary school. And um, it doesn't happen as, as much as it used to, it seems to be the case. But, but, but often you'll see these junior high kids, right? You know, 12, 13 years, 14 years old. They'll show up. And it's on Saturday. And the fence is closed. The gate is locked. There's no coming onto the school campus, right? It's all locked up. And you'll see a kid walk up there and stand there. And he's got his backpack in his hand, and he'll look, and I'll see him looking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and quickly throw his backpack over and pretend, you know, and then, then over he goes, right? And then what do I do? I call the Lakewood Sheriff. <laughs> I come and say, get out from there. You know you're not supposed to be up there. Why is he looking back and forth? Why is he looking around? Because he knows he's trespassing. Sin is trespass. It's a, wrongdoer. it's a wrongdoing that incurs guilt before God. Sin also is described this way. It's described as falling short of God's glory. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not, it's not making it all the way. It speaks to our impotence. The glory of God is here. It's perfection, it's holiness, it's righteousness, it's purity, and we fall short. Like I've said before, trying to shoot an arrow and it just goes, right? It doesn't even make it to the target. Sin is also a failure to conform to the moral law and character of God in our actions, attitudes, and natures. We spoke of this before. Matthew 5, 48 says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. When it comes to sin, God is not grading on the curve. That is not what grace is. That's an unbiblical view. God's requirement is, is perfection when it comes to holiness and righteousness. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin includes both individual acts of disobedience as well as an innate sinful nature or inheritance of a body of sin from Adam. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 6, I mean, Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Sin impacts the entire human being. There's not some little righteous reservoir somewhere down in here near your spleen or your appendix or in your spine or somewhere in your big toe that is not infected by sin. When we speak of, uh, of the depravity of sin, total depravity, we don't mean you're as bad as you can possibly be. We mean that sin infects all of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, our relationships. Mark 7, 21 to 23 says this, for from within... From within, it's not, this is something we have to remember. It's, it's not because, why, why is he, why did he rob that store? Why did, he, why did he have to rob that store? Well, it was because his education. He didn't do well in school. That's why he robbed the store. Why did he rob that store? It was, it was his, uh, his upbringing. It was his upbringing. That's why they're smashing and grabbing things. They just weren't raised well. That's why they smash and grab things. It's where they live. It's their demographic. It's, it's, uh, it's that they're poor. You see, if, if, if he owned a nice car like you own, he wouldn't steal things. It's that. That's what it is. It's all these things that are, that are outside. Sin is outside me. It's not inside me. But that's not what Scripture says. For from within, within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts wait a minute, why should Jeff drive a nice car? I deserve a nice car. I'm going to go get me a car like him. I can't afford it, but I'm going to steal it. Why should he have a good-looking wife? I want a good-looking wife like that. I'm lusting after her, but the heart's within. I'm going to go get me one. Illicitly, wrongly, wickedly. Out of the heart of man come evil, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Sin, sin, sin. Scripturally, sin is described as missing the mark for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's described as going astray all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. Sin is described as trespassing God's law. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Sin is described as transgression or rebellion. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is described as disobedience to God's commands, Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, they will be made righteous. Sin is described as godlessness and wickedness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's described as unbelief, Romans 14, 23. For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sin is described as enslavement or slavery. Jesus answered them, John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is one of the things that, that Satan always tells us or tries to convince us. And it's something that I, I'm sure I heard somewhere, but I, I say it often. Sin always starts out as freedom and ends up as slavery. It starts as freedom. Oh, throw off restraint. Go live. Do it. Go for it. Be your own self. Do the things you want to do. Grab all the gusto you can get. Right? From uh, people who are old, old as me remember that. Right? The old beer commercial. Grab all the gusto you can get. Then drive your car into some unsuspecting person and lose your license and go to jail. Death and separation of God, sin is also described as. Isaiah 59, 2. 
But your iniquities have, been, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. At its root, at its root, sin is a failure to love, to worship, and obey God as Lord of all. Fundamentally, it is rebellion and unbelief toward our Creator. Sin is real. Sin is real. Point two, the character of sin. This passage also gives us insight into the character or the disposition the tendencies of sin, how we act when we sin. Specifically, we see three troubling characteristics that I, I see here, and there's more. First, we see that first we see that sin hides. Sin hides. Back in verse eight, Adam and Eve hear the uh, the footsteps of God in the in the garden, and they immediately hide themselves among the garden trees. Look at God's response in verse nine. He says, he "says But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you?'" God of, course, God, of course, knows exactly where Adam is. He knows everything. He's completely all-knowing. But he calls out, where are you? And I think this is an invitation for Adam to come out and say, here I am. Forgive me. Run to God and embrace him and say, look at what I've done. I remember one time, I remember one time uh, a few years back when I heard a, a pastor who had, uh, with some texting, been inappropriate. It wasn't, in some ways, maybe completely over the top, but it was too. It was too. It was too. Uh, too friendly. Uh, too close in texting with a woman in his church. And when someone brought it to his attention, to his credit, he immediately went to his elders. And he said, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. Instead of making excuses and, 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 and saying, well, you know, come on, we're just joking. I was just joking, you know, da, 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 da. No, look at what I've done. God says, where are you? Where are you? He's hiding. Hiding from God is our natural response when we sin. Just as Adam and Eve hurried to conceal themselves, we want to hide, want to hide, and it shows that what is true of sin, sin is irrational. Sin is completely irrational. This is why when you get caught, you say, what was I thinking? Because sin is irrational. One of my old professors, John Frame at Reformed Theological Seminary said, said it this way, sin is stupid. Sin is stupid. God can see all. God knows all. I'm going to hide behind this tree. Right? Hiding from God is our natural response when we sin. Just as Adam and Eve hurried to conceal themselves, we want to hide from an all-seeing gaze of a holy God once we've disobeyed. Our sin makes us want to retreat into the shadows, away from the blazing light of God's presence. Brothers and sisters, friend, sin, sin lives in the dark. Sin lives in the dark. Why are bars and clubs dimly lit? Why does all the carousing go on at night? Let's have a rave today at 1.30 p.m. <laughs> at the park. Let's all show up and dress crazily, immodestly, jump around, act a fool. It all happens in the dark. Sin lives in the dark. Sin hides from the light. Why do we hide? Why do we hide? And think of it. Many of you are parents. Some with still children in the household. This could have happened this morning. I don't know. It could be happening this afternoon. You know what happens when your toddler, all of a sudden, it gets really quiet in the house. 
usually there's, there's yelling and fun and things happening, and all of a sudden it gets silent, and you think to yourself, or your husband turns to you and says, it's, it's quiet, too quiet, <laughs> right? And you go and look for the little, little master, the little mistress, and say, where is that little righteous little child? And there you find them behind the couch with a crayon drawing a masterpiece upon the wall, right? Where are you? Where are you? I was afraid. I heard you walking in the living room, and so I hid myself behind the couch because I knew I shouldn't be drawing on the wall because you've told me many times, don't draw on the wall. Daddy has plenty of paper for you to draw on. Whether it's the toddler or the 44-year-old man, sometimes we don't change all that much, do we? Because of guilt, we hide. Guilt is a good gift from God. Don't listen to the psychotherapists who want us to all get over our guilt. Guilt is a gift of God. If you're not feeling guilty when you sin, you're in real trouble. Your conscience has been, has been seared. It's been hardened. We want to be a people who have, who have sensitive consciences. I can remember one time sitting in a staff meeting, and the pastor was talking about something that was going on, work-type stuff. And I was sitting there, and I came to the pastor later and said, man, I'm sorry, I didn't turn in my paperwork that you had asked us to turn in. And he said, Kevin, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> but, I'm, but I appreciate <laughs> that your conscience is sensitive and you came to say you're sorry. We want to have sensitive consciences. We want our children to have sensitive consci consciences. Guilt is a good gift from God to alert us that something is wrong and needs to be made right in our relationship with God. But Adam and Eve here, rather than prompting them to repent and sometimes prompting us to repent, guilt often makes us want to hide, downplaying or covering up the wrong. Sin also hides through deception, deceiving ourselves and others about the nature and severity of our wrongdoing. It, it, it's just not that bad, right? I really didn't do that. Think of Aaron when he tries to hide his sin with the golden calf by, by claiming it just came out. I threw all this stuff in, and out of the fire came out this golden calf. I don't know what happened. That's also like some toddlers and, and sometimes your husband or wife, right? I don't know what happened. Sin loves concealment, but God in his mercy comes seeking after us. Though we may successfully hide our sins from others, we can never hide them from the Lord. We can never hide them from the Lord. Hebrews 4.13 declares, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees straight through all your hiding, yet he still pursues us with grace. What amazing mercy. What amazing mercy. God sees us but he still pursues us. When we sin, will we continue to try to hide from God? Will we run away from him? Or will we run to him, trusting his readiness to forgive us through Christ? Well, sin hides, but also we see in this passage that sin blames. The second troubling characteristic of sin is we see, that we see in this passage is, 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 is blaming. Look at verses 11 through 13 again. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yes, Lord, I did. I was wrong before you. Please forgive me. No, what does the man say? The, wo the woman. He points at her. The woman. And then not only does, it, does he blame the woman, he blames God. Because he says, the woman you gave me. Implying that somehow she's deficient and so is he. If you could have made me a better woman, she would have whacked me in the head and told me, you know, or she would have not ever offered this to me. 
The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Confronted with the opportunity to take responsibility, what do Adam and Eve do? They completely shirk responsibility by blaming others. Adam blames both Eve and even God himself. Eve blames the serpent. Neither is willing to simply own their disobedience with humble repentance. Blame shifting and avoiding responsibility are hallmarks of sin. Our natural tendency when confronted with our wrong is to deflect and defend. It makes me think of, uh, you know, my kung fu is better than your kung fu, right? I'm trying to tell you, you should have not have done that, whatever, and you're, and you're deflecting and you're, you're, you're defending and you're, you're weaving this way and that, doing everything you can except accept responsibility, which Jeff talked about so, so wonderfully last week. Rarely do we cry out as David did, I have sinned against the Lord. More often, we try excusing our sin, comparing ourselves to others, or like Adam and Eve, shifting blame. I heard Doug Wilson say one time, trying to encourage men to be better leaders, better husbands, right? To take responsibility and take initiative. That they should, he was talking about, you know, choosing a place to eat. And he was talking about a man and a woman that he was counseling in a marriage situation. And, uh, and he was asking about how they, you know, chose places to eat. And, and the, the husband was saying, you know, well, I ask her where she wants to eat. You know, where do you want to eat? Okay, instead of taking responsibility and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us to dinner. I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to ask her, where do you want to eat? And what was the man's reason? Why does he ask, where does she want to eat? And he goes, that's because when it's not very good, I can blame her. <laughs> Start there, men. Let me just encourage you. Study your wife, figure out what it is that she wants to eat, and make a decision. As a responsible man of God, say, we're going to Chick-fil-A. And then your wife will say, no, we're not. It's Sunday. <laughs> You're right, honey. Where would you like to go? No. <laughs> Take responsibility. I mean, when I heard that, when I read that, I think I either heard him in a sermon or told it. It, it, struck, it struck to my heart. It really did. Take responsibility. Take responsibility for our actions. As long as we refuse to own our sin, we're cutting ourselves off from the grace of God. But when we stop making excuses and take full responsibility as David did, we open the floodgates of God's mercy and forgiveness. Third characteristic of sin is that sin deceives. Sin deceives. Eve explains her, her transgression by saying, the sin, I'm sorry, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Sin has this frightening ability to make us believe in and act on things opposed to God's truth and our own good. Satan deceived Eve into doubting God's goodness, doubting his word, doubting the consequences of eating the fruit that God had said don't eat, and tragically grasping at a distorted view of freedom and God-likeness. She acted against God's clear command. From this first deception, we learn that one strategy of sin is distortion, distorting truth into compelling falsehoods. Satan told Eve just enough truth to get her to buy into the overarching lie that sin was in her best interests. And once deceived, it seemed perfectly logical for her to act against God's prohibition. Sin deceives. Sin deceives. Sin hides, sin blames, sin deceives. Today, Satan continues deceiving millions into believing sinful choices from hatred, lust, greed, to full-on rebellion and utter, belief, utter unbelief against God are acceptable and fulfilling paths. He persuades us that God's ways are limiting, they're stifling, they're unreasonable. To be a Christian is no fun. God, you know, God, God is, is just there to, to rain on your parade. Just as he deceived Eve, he deceives us into seeing the twisted logic of sin. He wants us to believe these twisted lies and the lies that also come from within, our, within ourselves as well. 
Because we're fighting not just Satan out there, but sin in here, aren't we? The world, the flesh, and the devil. To look and see that you're telling lies. I, I, I know I keep, I keep talking about this because I, I keep living it. Uh, last week, there were some posters that were put up at my school on how to apologize when you've misgendered someone. Put in all the elementary school bathroom doors. This is how you apologize when you've misgendered someone. It can sound, sin can sound so, so kind and so, so accepting, so welcoming. What do you want me to call you? You want me to call you a, a boy when you're a girl? I'll call you a boy. You want me to call you a girl when you're a boy? I'll, I'll do that. You want me to call you uh, A or X or you know, I don't, you know, I, I can't keep up with, with the pronouns. I can't keep up with the pronouns. And so, in a twisted way, there again, we have sin being, being twisted. And you're being made to sound crazy. You're the, you're the hateful one. My response, I'm, I know I'm on a tangent, forgive me. Sometimes I, when this has been brought up to me, I've said, have you read, have you read 1984? <laughs> have you read the Word of God? Two plus two is not five. Read that book again. It's very interesting. It's a very, very sad ending. Tragic. Because the ending is that the man accepts that two plus two is five. Why is two plus two five? Because the state says it is. Satan persuades us that God's ways are they're limiting, they're stifling, they're unreasonable. We must stand as Christ's followers. We must be on guard against deception, evaluating every thought and desire by God's eternal truth. Sin relies on distortion and deceit, but the Spirit uses truth, the truth of God's Word, to guide us. Point three, the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is the first consequence we see here. There's, and next week, I'm not going to steal the thunder of our pastor next week. He's going to get more into the next, these next sections here. But this curse includes, it seems like, a physical change to the serpent, forcing it to crawl on its belly and eat dust. But more significantly, it represents a spiritual curse on Satan, who's possessed the serpent and orchestrated humanity's fall into sin. So here's what this curse does, and this consequence, the consequence to Satan. It brings disgrace and defeat to Satan. Now forced to crawl in the dust, the, the once exalted angel is now humiliated and destitute. His schemes have failed to thwart God's plan. The serpent's lowly position foreshadows Satan's ultimate defeat. You once were an angel of light, beautiful to behold, amazing. Now you're crawling in the dirt on your belly. It only gets worse from you for here, from here. It anticipates future judgment. Though Satan continues his evil work for a time, his final doom is sure. Praise God for our song this morning. A mighty fortress is our God. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers. That word is capital W. That word is Jesus Christ, the living word. His doom is Sure, it anticipates, it, it, it anticipates future judgment. God promises that Eve's offspring, the Messiah, will decisively crush the serpent's head. More on that next week. A fatal blow to the serpent representing crippling defeat for Satan. It removes Satan's authority. Satan is now cursed and cut off from the position of power and authority he once held. No longer possessing the same ability to accuse and wield influence, his curse begins to slide into future defeat. 
Finally, it guarantees Satan's eternal destruction. The book of Revelation depicts Satan's final end. He's bound, thrown into the lake of fire, and tormented forever in Revelation 20.10. The serpent's curse in Genesis 3 anticipates his ultimate defeat and banishment. We get to see the end of the story. Yes, there's battles still to be to be, to, be, to be fought. Yes, he's, he's still like a roaring lion. He's still going around trying to deceive and accuse the brotherhood. But we know what his end is. And we see a, a foretaste of it here. You're crawling in the dirt on your belly. So in cursing the serpent, God pronounces Satan's disgrace, defeat, and coming destruction. The curse in Genesis 3.13 represents a pivotal spiritual blow foreshadowing the redemptive victory Christ will ultimately accomplish over Satan and sin. And as I've said, more on that next week. So we've seen these sobering realities of sin. There's consequences there for Satan, but there's consequences for man as well. The consequences of sin continued here. First, for humans, estrangement from God estrangement from God. First, we see the immediate consequence of estrangement from God. Their nakedness and hiding illustrate the separation their sin has created between them and God. Where once they shared this warm fellowship with their creator, now there's, there's distance, hostility, and dread in his presence. This shows the devastating relational effect of our own sin today. When we choose disobedience, it disrupts our connection with God. Though he never leaves us, our sin can erect barriers in our relationship with him. Barriers of, of guilt and shame and fear. Where once we sensed his nearness and love, now sin creates a cold distance. So sin always creates separation and estrangement. Another consequence is cut off access from God. Cut off access from God. In addition to relational estrangement, Adam and Eve... Sin results in their banishment and lost access to God's presence. Genesis 3, 23, 24 tells us, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cast out from God's presence and the tree of life, the rest of Adam and Eve's now mortal lives will be lived in exile. What was meant to be unfettered relationship is now tragically limited. No longer can they walk with God in the, in the cool of the day in the garden's beauty. No longer can they just reach out and eat of the tree of life. Their sin has permanently barred them from the garden. When we allow sin to enter our lives today, we too experience the painful loss of access and freedom to walk with our God. Sin erects these walls, blocking our connection with him. It swaps unfettered communication for restriction and chains. Until we confess and return to obedience, our sin can, can cut us off from the fullness of relationship with God that he intend, intends to enjoy with him. Think of David's prayer, restore to me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I've said before that the, the, the most miserable person on the face of the planet is the Christian who knows how he should be living, but he's not. Your bones waste away. You become sick and ill in, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, physically. Stop. 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 Like the prodigal son, stop eating the slop. Stop eating the slop. Look up and look around and go, oh my goodness, I'm dining with pigs. I've got a heavenly father who loves me, who would embrace me. If only I would return. Turn and make a beeline to your heavenly father. Father, forgive me for I've sinned. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. May I have unfettered access to you, being in right relationship with you. 
Letter C. Another, another one here. Living under God's wrath. Most seriously, Adam and Eve's sin places them under God's righteous wrath. While they do not experience the full outpouring of what that wrath in the garden, the coming of death into their now fallen world demonstrates that they will one day face judgment for their rebellion. God's wrath remains the most sobering consequence hanging over all who walk in disobedience. As Romans 1.18 declares, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. To remain in unconfessed sin is to store up future wrath. Letter D, the ultimate consequence, Christ's death. The ultimate consequence. As tragic as the consequences were for Adam and Eve, far more horrific consequences resulted for another member of the Trinity, the Son of God. You see, ultimately, Christ bore the full weight of consequence for Adam and Eve's first sin and every sin of every believer that they've ever committed since. Though wrath hangs over the unbeliever and the disobedient, Christ endured that wrath as he hung on the cross. Though the wages of sin is death, Christ paid that wage through his blood. We sang of it today over and over again. I don't know if you noticed or not, but every single song we mentioned that great sacrifice, the great cost. What does your sin cost? What does my sin cost? It cost the death of God's own son. Look at him. See him there on the cross, bleeding and torment and agony, feeling the wrath of his father upon himself. That's what your sin looks like. It gives a physical representation of the consequence of sin. The innocent son of God willingly took the consequences of sin that we rightly deserve. Wrath, death, separation from the father. He bore it all so that all who trust in him might be reconciled to God. I think I've told this before, but I'm going to tell it again. One of the most beautiful pictures I ever heard about this that illustrated this was my brother and his wife and their little girls. There was a time when it was one of those days where Kenry, my sister-in-law, was at home, and the girls, the girls, three, three girls at that time, were very, very young, and they had, a, they had a tough day. They were probably 10, 11, 12, around that area. It was one of those days where all day long, you know, a homeschooling mom is just trying to get them to do what they should do, and they're not, and they're disobedient, and they're talking back, and they're snarky, and they're fighting each other, and they're ill-tempered. So they had really been bad girls that day. And... Um, came home, said, wait till your dad gets home, right? When your dad gets home, we're going to have a little family discussion here. My sister-in-law met with my brother, and they came up with a plan. So they came out. My sister-in-law stood and had the little girls all sit down on the couch, and she said, all rise, all rise for the judge, Garen Bryan, your father. The girls all looked around, and they stood up, and in walks my brother with, a, with his bathrobe on. He comes in, he sits down. He says, please be seated. I will now hear from the prosecutor, your mother, <laughs> the charges. They went charge by charge for each of the daughters. They were, you know, talking back. They were disrespectful. They were mean to each other. They were gossipy and backbiting. And, you know, they go through all the little sins. And the little girls all were like, yep, yes, they all agreed. Are, they, is this, are these charges true? Yes, they all agreed. They're, they were... They're good little Christian girls, basically. But they're, they're admitting, yes, we have sinned. We've done these, these bad things. Well, okay, judge, what is the charge against them? Or what's the punishment going to be? Well, the punishment is going to be a whipping, a spanking, three swats each, something like that. And the little girls are like, oh, they knew, they knew that was coming. They knew that's what was going to happen. And so, so she says, okay, girls, stand up. And the girls stand up. They get the spanker, and then just before they get ready to administer the justice there, the punishment, my brother says, stop. They say, what? Stop. He says, I will take 
the whipping for them. <laughs> All three of the girls burst into tears. No, Daddy. No. You haven't sinned. You haven't done wrong. You didn't call my sister a bad name. You didn't talk back to mommy. You're right. I haven't. But I'm taking your punishment for you. And he bent over. <laughs> and he said, he said, oh my goodness, all that pent up, uh, I think there's some pent up stuff with my wife. <laughs> he said, she gave me a good one. He said, she lit, she lit me up. And then they turned, they turned to their daughters and they said, do you understand what your father has done for you? Yes. And that is what your heavenly father, because of the giving of his blessed son, Jesus Christ, has done for us all. We deserve it. We deserve the punishment. And he has taken it in our place. Even here, in Genesis 3, at the origin of sin, we see grace. We're going to see a lot more of it next week as we continue in this study. We see a merciful God pursuing and promising redemption. Though sin entered the world through Adam, Romans 5 tells us, grace abounded all the more through Jesus Christ. Grace abounded all the more through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, you are a great God, a glorious God, a gracious God. Lord, when we are honest with ourselves, and we can only be honest through the power of your Holy Spirit, when we look clearly and realistically at our own sin in our lives, we are, we are crushed. We are helpless. We are hopeless. But then we remember, as we've read your word today, that, that we are not without help. We are not without hope. No, you have sent your blessed son for us. And you crushed him for our iniquities. You laid our sin upon him. And you treated him the way we should be treated. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Lord, I pray even now that if there's anyone in this congregation who have heard this sermon, who have yet to put their hope and trust in Christ, that they would do so even now and know the joy of our salvation. Lord, we love you today. We praise this in your we pray this in your son's name. Amen.